Thank you, Abby, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning, Bethany. I'm glad that you've joined us on this uh, Memorial Day weekend. We're continuing a series entitled On the Margins, and it's uh, looking at various encounters that Christ has with uh, people in healing ministry. Very important what we're looking at this morning, so I'll invite you to join me in prayer as we consider this together. Father, thanks that, thanks that we can gather here this morning on this day. Uh, the freedom with which we gather is a gift. We're mindful of that. The opportunity to be shaped by your Holy Spirit is a gift. We're mindful of that. We're mindful as well, Father, of the many, many divisions and fear and anger that uh, seem so uh, deeply rooted in our culture right now, saturating many relationships, bringing division. I pray, Father, that your spirit would speak to us now and that we'd uh, be responsive to what you reveal in order that we might be shaped to be a uniting force in our city and in our world. And we'll thank you for that as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So uh, how many of you have seen uh, a movie entitled The Book of Eli in here? Anyone? Only a few. Now, I hate to do this, but I'm going to spoil the movie for you this morning because you're going to want to go see it after I talk to you about it a little bit. It's actually a a movie about the Bible. It's actually a movie about the Bible, but it's a post-apocalyptic scenario sometime in the future. There's been some kind of a nuclear annihilation of America, and there's this guy, Denzel Washington, who is carrying the last copy of the Bible uh, from the Midwest to the West Coast, and there's, a, there's a, uh, the evil guy who wants to gain this copy of the Bible, and the, that's what the story basically is about. What's interesting for this morning is you might ask, well, why would an evil guy want the Bible? And uh, I'm quoting now from the movie. I was going to show you a clip of the movie, uh, this guy explaining why he wants the Bible, but, but because he's so evil, it's mostly swearing. And I decided not to show it in church, right? <laughs> so that's why I didn't show, that's why I'm not, I'm not showing the clip. But this is what the guy says. He says, if, we get, if I can get a hold of that book, I can rule more than just this rundown city. I can rule the world. Why? Because if I, I can tell people to do anything as long as I quote words from that book, And that's a powerful statement because what it reveals is the extent to which the Bible can be misused because of misinterpretation and end up in really damaging results. And if you go back and you look uh, through the history of Western civilization, you see this over and over again. The Bible was the basis for colonialism, for slavery, for environmental degradation, for separation at times between the rich and the poor, and for the rise of the Reich in Germany in the 1930s. Everybody used the Bible. And so the Bible's open to misuse, and this is kind of part of the central theme in our topic this morning, because when we see Jesus here in John chapter 5, and we'll look at John 9 as well as a correlating text, we come to discover that Jesus, as it turns out, is not at war with pagans or people on the margins or people in deep trouble because they've made bad decisions in their lives. Most of Jesus' frustration and anger is directed toward religious people. Uh, because of their pride and judgmentalism and legalism, all of which build walls between people and God and people and each other. So here's Jesus. Remember what he says in Matthew chapter 11? Hey, everyone, come to me if you're labored 
and are weighed down. I'm going to give you rest. Come just as you are, without any conditions, I'll give you rest. Here's Peter. It's important that we place no greater burden on Gentiles. Just bring them to Christ. Here's Paul, 2 Corinthians 11. I'm concerned, writes Paul to the Corinthian church, that your hearts have been led astray from the quote, unquote, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. All I want you to do is come to Jesus. Jesus will do the transforming. And, and, and so this is what we want to see is people coming without any preconditions into a family of faith, recognizing that if we all come without preconditions, we won't all agree on everything. Does this make sense? There will be disagreements amongst us. We'll agree on one thing. Jesus is Lord. And then in the midst of that uh, unite, united attitude toward Christ, we will grow into a unity uh, regarding all other issues, but it will take Years, a lifetime, centuries will continue to grow. But the one thing that draws us together is life in Christ. I'm going to tell you that is conspicuously absent in our culture presently, all across America. I'll give you one example, going back to my uh, time in seminary. I attended seminary in Southern California, and the campus on which I took classes was a, was a large church in L.A., and uh, in, my, in my seminary, it was dispensational, which means... Uh, a belief that kind of miracle gifts like speaking in tongues and healings and stuff like that, all that stopped happening in 325 AD. And if you're asking why 325, not this sermon. There's a whole different sermon about that. But just take it on faith for now. Yeah, all the, the no more, you know, supernatural stuff, including tongues, right? So uh, many of my, I didn't go to that church, but many of my peers did. And then two miles down the road, Another big church saying, hey, if you come to Jesus, you should speak in tongues. Everybody should speak in tongues, right? That church was called Church on the Way. My peers in seminary didn't like these people. I mean, it was antagonistic to the point where they nicknamed Church on the Way, Church in the Way. And they called it Church in the Way. They said, man... Look at those people, they go to that church, and there was, there was a lot of kind of derogatory language leveled against Christians, and it bugged me, right? And this is, this is kind of what we see over and over again, all through the history of the church, is divisions arising on particular doctrin doctrinal issues. Do you speak in tongues? Oh, you go to the church in the way. Oh, what do you believe about divorce and remarriage? That, we divide over that. What do you believe about women in ministry? We divide over that. What do, who did you vote for? We divide over that. What do you believe about capitalism and socialism? We divide over that. And we divide and we divide and we divide until we're this fragmented, isolated, tribal group who say this, hey, come just as you are. What a joke. What we're really saying is align your beliefs completely with what we believe, look like us, think like us, dress like us, buy like us, vote like us, then you're welcome. We would never say that explicitly, but it's implied. And this text addresses that because what we see is that, is that that kind of divisive Christianity comes from not God, but our false understanding of God. And it's, this is revealed in a kind of a, what I call a three-act play here this morning. So act one, there's a healing. Act two, there's a challenge and testimony to the healing. And act, act three, there's a second encounter with Jesus. So let's look at these. We're going to begin with act one. Abby has read already uh, the story for us of the healing of this man, right? And so to recap... 
picture that you've got the temple and then kind of an outer court, a portico, and there's some pools out there of water. And every once in a while, the water would start to ripple a little bit because an angel would kind of move the water. First person in the water then would be healed after the, when the water's rippling. The first person would be healed. This guy's been uh, sitting by this pool, apparently. He's been uh, for 38 years. And then Jesus says, hey, do you, do you want to be healed? And what does he say? He says, well, I can't be healed because every time I try to get in the pool, because I can't walk, somebody gets there first. And so I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. I haven't been healed. And then, basically, Jesus says, well, just get up then. You don't, have, don't even worry about going to the pool. Get up and walk. And he gets up and he picks up his mat on which he sits and sleeps, picks up his mat, and he walks. That's the healing story. Now, let's look at it for a second. First of all, we could speculate regarding the nature of why these waters move. And if you're into, like, esoteric biblical speculation, then you can debate, is this supernatural? Is this, uh, is there really an angel there? Is this superstition? Did the waters really move? And here's the thing, we don't know. So I'm not going to talk about that because I don't like to talk about things that I don't know. This is why I've never spoken on Revelation uh, here, because I don't understand the last book of the Bible. So until I do, I'm not going to say anything about it, right? But what we do know in this story, what we do know is this guy's suffering from a disease that is common to most people who live on the margins. And that disease, before there's a physical disease, there's this disease. It's the disease of isolation. In other words, his assessment of the reason that he's still not healed after 38 years is, what does he say? I have no one to put me in the pool. And we'll just key in on that phrase, I have no one. That is relational poverty, right? And here's what's interesting. We know this, even though uh, he has no one, it's relational poverty, even he has no one, he's surrounded by people. How do we know this? Because he's in the temple courtyard. The closest thing that we have in our culture that I can think of is either Red Square at the University of Washington, uh, Martin Square at Seattle Pacific or Westlake Center downtown. Like, there's always people moving. That's where he is. And even though he's there, there's no, he has no one to help him, right? Now, who is also there, besides all the people and the sick people, is there are people that I'm calling in this story the doctrinal police. In John 5, they're called the Jews, but probably in particular, they're the Pharisees, those who are looking for violators of God's law. And they don't have time to help him, but as soon as he is, uh, quote, unquote, violating the Sabbath, boom, they're all over him. Now, this is amazing because uh, the, the, what you see here is this guy's poverty, even though he's in the midst of people. Now, why would that be? Here's why. Because people are isolated based on their condition. And in our culture, isolated based on their politics, based on their sexual ethics, based on uh, doctrinal divisions, right? Mother Teresa says this, America is the poorest nation on earth because the worst poverty is relational poverty. And we are a nation rife with relational poverty. Many of us, when we hear that in a setting like this, rush to, oh yeah, yeah, homelessness, relational, relational poverty, mental illness, relational poverty. I'm going to say this this morning, don't move too quickly. Don't move too quickly to the far margins. Let's look at our own house. Uh, let's think about 
Church-initiated isolation. Church-initiated isolation. Based on doctrinal positions. Based on uh, sexual ethics. Based on politics. Does anyone in the room know of a broken relationship, like people are no longer in relationship because of division based on doctrine or sexual ethics or politics within the community of faith? Just think about that for a minute. Does anyone know someone like that? Don't, don't say anything. But instead of saying something, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. If you know someone uh, who's, in a, who's experienced broken relationship based on doctrine, sexual ethics, politics, I want you to stand up. Just stand up if you know somebody who's, who's broken based on that. And then it would be powerful to look around, actually, and see that this is, this is a world that we live in. Thank you. You can go ahead and be, be seated. The thing I want you to see here is that, is that what Christ addresses first is the problem of this guy's isolation. And the way that Christ addresses this is he moves into his world, uh, which means first he sees him, second he moves toward him, third he has more than sympathy. He's, he's going to address the relational divide before he addresses anything else. And, and uh, when uh, uh, the guy says he has nobody to help him get to the water, Jesus, in essence, says, look, you don't even need the water. All you need is what? Me. Get up your mat right now. You're healed. Get, get up. And the reason this is significant for us is we are Christ today. Christ lives in you. Colossians 1.26. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's why we have a ministry of racial justice and reconciliation here at Bethany. That's why we have a homeless shelter. That's why we have a, a, a partnership with Aurora Commons. That's why we serve a community meal. Uh, that's why we have a food bank. That's why we have these things. We just heard about them. Jonathan just shared about the significance of crossing social divides. Nobody needs just money. Nobody. People need relationship. And Jesus shows us that by virtue of Christ's life in us, we're called to be healers, and we follow then in the path of Christ. First I see, second I enter a relationship, third I serve and point to Christ as a source of healing. That's this story. So that's the first thing. God wants us as a community to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Wants us to be people crossing social divides, not creating social divides. So we start there, and the guy's healed. But then, in Act 2, there's a challenge, and then this guy's testimony. So let's look at the text in verse 10. The Jews said to the man who'd been healed, wow, you're healed. Let's throw a party. No, that's not what they said. This is what they said. The Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Can you just imagine this? This guy's been sick for 38 years. Now he's healed. The first words that he hears are, you just broke the law, right? So it's the Sabbath day, and because it's the Sabbath day, the Jews say to him, it's not lawful for you to pick up your bed. This is actually the crux of the entire event because it reveals how people's life-giving simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ gets lost under layers of human-fabricated religion, but human-fabricated religion doesn't come from nothing. It comes from the Bible. 
and a misreading of the Bible. And so in this case, the, the, the text that is misread by the Sabbath police is Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. So I'm going to turn there and read. This is what God says regarding the Sabbath, right? Exodus 20. Just, just listen. Here's God. This is supposed to, supposed to be a gift from God to us. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days, do your work. Seventh day, Sabbath, don't do any work. Not you, not your children, not your servants, not even your animals, and not your guests. Six days, God made the heavens and the earth, rested on the seventh. God blessed the Sabbath day. You too bless the Sabbath day. That's, that's the law, right? Now, uh, sounds simple. It's not. Uh, here's the deal. Uh, well, what do we mean by work? Oh, uh, the religious experts kind of put their heads together and uh, they decided in a book called the Mishnah, which is like a commentary on the Old Testament, there's actually 39 categories of work. So, okay, you can't work. Well, what does work mean? Well, and each, now hear me, each one of these 30, 39 categories has a commentary written, written about just that element as well. 39 categories. So what is work? Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting. Really? <laughs> what do you want for dinner? Ah! You chose. You violated. Combing. You're all violators this morning. Spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, so no knitters, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skidding, tanning, smoothing, and marking. Done. Except we're not done because the first category was what? Carrying. Well, what do I mean by carrying? Well, I'm glad you asked. Listen to this. For example, this is part of a large commentary just on carrying, and there's 39 of them, right? Uh, don't, like on the, on the Sabbath, the, the horn, the ram's horn, the, called the shofar, never to be blown on the Sabbath. Why? Because that means you'd have to pick it up. And to pick it up would be a, viola a violation of the law, do you see? Now, here's something interesting about carrying. Carrying is permitted in the privacy of your home. Only in the public domain can you not carry. However, even when you're at home, it's forbidden to carry unnecessary objects. Oh, excuse me. Yes, it's forbidden to carry unnecessary objects, even indoors. Uh, and so the Sanhedrin legislated things that cannot be touched on the Sabbath. What can't you carry? Well, you can't carry pebbles, stones, pencils, candles, money, hairbrush, false teeth, or anything that weighs more than a dried fig. Enjoy your day off, right? <laughs> so do you understand here? Uh, here's the deal. The, the Sabbath police are offended because what is this guy doing? Look, he's carrying his mat. And carrying is the first of 39 categories in which you can violate the law, and he's violating the law. So, so they're on him immediately, and they're so offended that it 
it doesn't even enter into their minds to celebrate that he's been healed. And I believe it's for one of two reasons. Either A, they are literally Sabbath police. And if you're police, all you're looking for, you really don't see people until they break the law. I was a basketball official for many years, high school basketball, and you really, you really don't notice much because if you're an official, you're looking for violations, right? There can be great shots, great screens, great plays, great steals. We don't care. We're just like this. Oh, traveling. Ah, blocking. Ah, charging. Other way. Oh, tactical. Get out of the gym. I love that. But we miss the game, right? Because all we see is the violation. So that could be these guys. Or it could be that they, like they never saw him, or maybe they had seen him in the past, but they're so offended by the fact that he broke the law that they couldn't rejoice with him. They could only scold him. And so what I want you to see here is when I have these kind of police glasses on, the joy of the moment is stolen. I'm going to make a bold declaration here. Religion steals joy. I have a married friend that back in the 70s. He went through the agony of divorce. He knew Christ, but his divorce was the end of his relationship with the church because the doctrinal police were right there. Get out. I have a friend, a gay friend, knew God, loved Christ, had gifts, since passed away. This was back in the 70s as well. He tried what was in the 70s uh, called reparative therapy. He tried to change his sexual orientation. Was told if he prayed enough, studied enough, did enough counseling, he'd change. Instead of repair, it made him suicidal. So he gave that up stayed in the closet with his sexuality, found intimacy with Christ, found a calling, went to seminary, but in the midst of a thriving calling, he came out, so to speak, and that was the end of it. Boom, doctor police, lost his ministry position, in spite of his love for Christ, in spite of trying to change and failing, and eventually coming to peace with, with his identity, he was done. Do you understand what I'm saying? The police can't see what God is doing, and I will be bold enough to suggest that the reason they miss it is their desire to protect is a desire to protect not God's law, but their understanding of the law. And the, and, and the crux of this is really revealed for us in a kind of a different story in John 9, different healing story. So in John 9... Jesus heals a guy born blind. Uh, and again, it was a Sabbath violation. And uh, so just listen as I read. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Very important. The Pharisees asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said, The guy put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And then the Pharisees, the kind of the religious elite here, they divide. Some said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? 
and there's a division among them. Do you understand? What? Now, this is very important. Here's people who went to seminary. Do you, are you with me? Like they know their Bibles and they have views on the Scripture, but here they divide into two camps, two views. One, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. View number two, how could a man who is not from God do these things? He's healed. Now listen, because I hear this all the time. People say to me, hey, the Bible's clear on this, so don't be swayed by experience. In other words, they say, because the Bible's clear, what I'm going to do is hold the situation up to the light of the Bible in order to determine whether this person is in or out of God's favor. Is the guy who healed this man from God? Clearly not, because here's the Sabbath law. The guy, yes, the guy is healed, but the guy cannot be from God. He broke the law. That's view one, right? Don't let experience change your view of the law. But then, there's another, there's another group here, and, and they say, wait a minute, we think maybe this man is from God because the guy was blind and now he sees. If he's not from God, how did this happen? In other words, view two, this is what they're saying, maybe we don't understand the Bible correctly. Are you with me? Either we've got it, 100%, no lack of clarity, therefore we invalidate the experience, or the experience is undeniable, and because the experience doesn't square with my view of the Bible, maybe I need to change my view of the Bible. So far, making sense? So this is kind of where we're at here. And this goes on all the time. This thing, experience, Understanding the text. Uh, can this woman preach with God's blessing? Well, what does the Bible say? Can this divorced person serve God? Well, what does the Bible say? Can this gay person know God and be involved in God's story of hope? What does the Bible say? Can this person battling mental illness have genuine faith and intimacy with God? What does the Bible say? And we all have our convictions on all these things. And we all have our conclusions, just like the Pharisees do. But some in the room are saying, look, my mind is made up and nothing I ever see will change my mind. And others in the room are saying, no, <laughs> I have a conviction, but I'm willing to have my conviction reordered by, by what I see in experience. I'm willing to let experience cause a rethinking. Does this make sense? So let's go back to my seminary uh, days and church in the way. And I ended up having an encounter with a few of my peers. And I said, hey, listen, uh, I happen to know somebody who knows somebody. And I ended up going to church in the way last Sunday. And I'm here to tell you, they're not in the way. What do you mean? I said, oh, well, I was there. I was there. People are praying. People know their Bibles. People are crossing social divides. I was there because my friend worked for Youth with a Mission YWAM in a ministry uh, working with women seeking to escape prostitution who were in a halfway house. And I was their ride to church. So I went to the halfway house, picked up my friend, picked up three women who were escaping prostitution and watched them 
Raise their hands. Sing. Read their Bibles. Weep. Repent. And speak in tongues. And I said to my friends, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> this is real. Now, do you hear me? I have to be willing to at least rethink my theology based on my experience. So those are the two camps. There's experience, and there's my understanding of Scripture, and one group says, never let experience inform your understanding of Scripture. And the other group says, wait a minute, let's be a little more humble than that. If there's an experience, allow the undeniability of the experience to, at the least to cause you to rethink your view. Two camps. Let me say something, and I hope you know this. My desire for Bethany <laughs> is that we be in camp two, not camp one. I'm just going to say that. That we be in camp two, not camp one, so that when we meet someone who doesn't seem to be living exactly the way we think righteousness should find expression, and yet who loves people, loves their enemies, loves Jesus, prays, gives, displays the fruit of the Spirit, then our response should be, because this person loves Jesus, loves their enemies, prays, serves, crosses social divides, displays the fruit of the Spirit, they're from God. Even though I don't agree with this. Are you with me? I, I'm going to say this is huge for us. Why? I believe Jesus validated camp two in Matthew 7, verse 20. When he said what? Oh, here's how you'll know them. By their, does anyone know the rest? You'll know them by their fruit. Like, what do you see? <laughs> and I'll tell you, at Bethany, I see Republicans who love Jesus, love their enemies, pray, serve, cross social divides, display the fruit of the Spirit. I see Democrats who love Jesus, love their enemies, pray, cross social divides, display the fruit of the Spirit. I see uh, straight people who love Jesus, love their enemies, pray, serve, cross social divides, display the fruit of the Spirit. I see uh, members of the LGBTQ community who love Jesus, love enemies, pray, serve, cross social divides. I see pacifists and Second Amendment rights people. I see people of this color and that color. I see people far to the left, far to the right, capitalists, socialists. I see it all. And if someone loves Jesus, loves their enemies, prays, serves, cross social divides, displays the fruit of the Spirit, then it's incumbent upon me to, to, not to exclude, but to say, hey, I wonder what this means for my belief system. Are you with me? And so now, we're, if we go back to the story in John 5, they're ready to punish this guy because they're convinced he's breaking the law, but what he's actually breaking is not the law. What he's breaking is their interpretation of the law. So when uh, he, he's accused, in verse 11, he says, hey, the man who healed me told me to take up my bed. In other words, their accusation to him, you brought, you're breaking the Sabbath, man. You're walking with your mat. You're carrying. He says, whatever, the guy who healed me told me to carry my mat. They say, who told you? He says, I don't know. <laughs> That's what I say about the book of Revelation. I don't know. But then, that brings us to Act 3. 
Jesus goes and finds the guy. And he says to the guy, hey, you're healed. Stating the obvious. And then says, go and sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. A couple, couple of vital things to note here. Number one, sin has consequences always. Paul articulates it this way in the book of Galatians. We always reap what we sow. So Jesus' advice here is less threatening and more practical and pastoral. Jesus is saying, hey, this is the way the universe works. And, and so uh, if you go forth here, know this, there are worse things that can happen to you than just being paralyzed. You can become a slave to self-destructive choices. You can isolate yourself rather than uh, being isolated by the sins of others. You can deceive and, rest, and live the rest of your life in lawsuits looking over your shoulder. Don't do that. Walk the path of God. You'll sleep better at night. That's what he's saying. And he's not saying that illness is a result of sin because we know this uh, from the other story in John 9. Who sinned that this guy was born blind? What does Jesus say? Nobody. You live in a fallen world. But here's the punchline. Jesus goes and finds the guy and the guy is a little bit afraid of being arrested, right? So what does he do? He says, hey, that guy you're looking for? Jesus. It's, it's like when I'm speeding, I don't really care if other people are going faster than me. Does that make sense? Because I, I know that the patrolman will be after the other person, not me, right? It's a terrible, perverted, fallen world way of thinking. But I'm just telling you, it's a practical application here. This guy's, this guy's like this. Hey, um, they're not going to bother me anymore. Like, they, they want to they wanna go to the dealer, so to speak. Are you with me? And so he deflects. He, he, he points out Jesus. And that's, how the, that's actually how the story ends, with the religious folks persecuting Jesus. Now, let me tell you why this story matters uh, so much for Bethany. Let me tell you why. Uh, you know, when I showed up here in 1978 as a college student, taking a bus from Seattle Pacific, the first time I showed up, hanging above the door in the chapel across the street was a sign, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And I was like, having grown up in a Baptist finger-wagging environment, I was like this, what? What does this look like? And then I, pr I proceeded to learn what it looks like by being part of this community and understanding there are people who don't think like me, people who view the Bible differently than me. We have differing views on, you know, what exactly happened on the cross, like not did Jesus die or not, but what does it mean theologically? Different views on speaking in tongues, different views on miracles. Even back there in the 70s, controversially here at Bethany, different views on divorce and remarriage. Different views. And I, this felt like home. My predecessor would have speakers come in who were all over the map. L liberal theologians from the East Coast would come and speak. And then a month later, a Pentecostal evangelist would come and speak. <clears throat> My head exploded. And I was like, where am I? That all these people get along. What holds them together? And of course, what's the answer? Christ. I didn't know then how important that would be in my own story. It became important when I moved to Los Angeles and went to seminary and met people at the church in the way. And it's important now. And the reason it's important now is in my lifetime, 63 years old, 
I've never been in a culture more polarized, more divided, more afraid. And my prayer is that Bethany Community Church would be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And how can that happen? By saying, if what I see in you is the fruit of the Spirit, I may not agree with you about everything, but I will know fellowship with you. Because I'm told by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And that requires, again, according to Ephesians 4, the humility to admit that just maybe, maybe, God's not done shaping me. I have things to learn. May this be our story so that we can be a uniting force in our city in the days ahead. Amen? Father, would you meet us now as we respond? Our desire is uh, to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Our desire is to uh, hold our convictions with courage and integrity, but with open hands, allowing you to continually reshape us because you've told us over and over again in the scriptures that we're on a lifelong journey of transformation. And may we enjoy that journey together, united in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.